good evening everybody hope everyone had a uh, good thanksgiving holiday and that you were able to spend some time with your family and had opportunity to worship the lord this weekend and that you were able to give thanks for like we talked about uh i guess last sunday as we were getting ready for thanksgiving that hey if we don't have anything else to be thankful for but that god saved us uh, that's enough right because we didn't deserve that everything else is icing on the cake but we have much to be thankful for <clears throat> as the children of the lord so just remind you that we are uh, obviously doing this live but also going to have it on our podcast so uh, if you haven't found the podcast rk ministries go find it wherever you can find podcasts it's there and just like it and subscribe to it and then uh you know turn on notifications so you get new content when we do it usually always put up our sunday morning sermon and also what we do on sunday night here but occasionally we'll have other content on there i know the last one i did was related to the uh, uh issue of the 1946 movie that was coming out dealing with the issue of the word the english word homosexuality in the bible saying that it was a uh mistranslation of arsenicoite and so we got a whole um podcast dealing with that and i may do something later on this week or in the near future dealing with the bill that is presently in uh in congress i think the senate has passed it and this uh headed to congress and that has to do with what they call um I forget the name of the bill now, but it has to do with marriage, basically protecting the issue of, of gay marriage. Uh, and they tied in with the concept of interracial marriage as if the two have something to do one with the other. But anyway, um, I'll, I may do something on that a little later on. I've already got something dealing with homosexuality and, and gay marriage on there, but I think it might, might be pertinent to do something in light of this new bill uh, that is, is coming out. But our focus tonight is none of that. Our focus tonight is Revelation chapter 4. We've moved from the first vision. John had his first vision of the risen Christ, which included the letter, the seven letters to the seven churches that we have worked our way through. And now we come to uh, the second vision uh, where John has this throne room vision of, of the Lord is kind of like what ezekiel had and kind of like what isaiah has so a lot of the background for this vision you can find images images like it in in um, isaiah and in uh, ezekiel and some in daniel as well so all of that undergirds or at least parallels what uh, john is telling us in these visions that he's seeing and so everything from, from this vision, this throne room vision in chapter 4 uh, and 5, chapter 4 and 5 incorporate the throne room vision, every other vision f flows out of this vision that we're about to begin uh, tonight. And so, again, the way we're going at these visions, we're going at this interpretation of Revelation is in a... Um, uh, the words just slipped my mind. Oh, oh, the old man up here is getting slower and slower. He's uh, he's having a hard time finding uh, these words that I need to find uh, sometimes. But uh, um, reca recapitulation, that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> We're coming at it from a, a means of recapitulation. In other words, each one of these, as we get into these visions, each one of these visions are going to be telling us the same story uh, and it's going to unfold and, and give us a little bit more detail into that story. And we're going to get a little bit different angle from that story. Uh, and so we'll see that unfold as we go through these visions. But they're all telling us the story of how God is working out his redemptive plan in this, in this world uh, amongst uh, the earth and human beings. And so each one of them builds on another. There's a couple of 
parentheses most commentators call it amongst these visions but even in those parentheses i think we still see the same story unfolding uh from uh beginning to end uh god's beginning work of redemption and his ultimate culmination in judgment on this earth and the redemption of his people so uh, this is the first step in that journey through revelation so I thought maybe we'll just read, there's 11 verses in chapter 4. We'll just read those 11 verses, and then we'll kind of just go back and break those verses down and, and provide some commentary as we uh, unpack what these verses uh, are telling us or what they could be telling us, and then we'll have some application at the end of that. What does it mean? What does it mean for the 21st century? are the first century Christians and what does it mean for a 21st century Christian today or any other generation of Christians that come after us because Revelation was meant to be an encouragement to all Christians and all generations not just for one particular generation of, of Christian uh, people so if you have your Bibles with with you and or your digital device and you've got them open now or you have found Revelation 4 let's begin to read and the Bible says, After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Cornelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments and with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of god and before the throne there was as it were a sea of glass like crystal and around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind the first living creature like a lion the second like a living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature with an, well, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around, within and, uh, and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For your create for your creation you created all things, and by you by your will they exist and were created. Alright, that's our text today, so let's just dig in and see what the Lord is saying through the Apostle John <clears throat> to us. The first two words we encounter are after this in the English, uh metatauta. Uh meta is a preposition that just means uh with i guess you could say or or in tauta is a demonstrative pronoun which means either this or these generally so or with metas with or after uh so after obviously these things so the the idea or after this what is the after this he's talking about in this text uh, after this i think has to do with the first vision that he just encountered after after he saw the vision of christ after he uh had these seven letters given to him by the risen lord after this after this first initial vision on whatever on the day of the lord that it was then he encountered this second vision we'll find out in a moment it seems as though he had 
and some time had elapsed from the first vision to the second vision. Now, again, we don't have a definitive way of proving that. It just seems because of the language that time may have elapsed. And so this may be a different day that he received this vision because he's caught up in the spirit again, if you will, like he was in the first vision. And so we see this familiar phrase in this text that we, we will see over and over again, John looking and beholding, and then later on we'll see the looking and beholding attached to hearing. Uh, so John is visually seeing things and explaining things, and he's hearing things and explaining things, and uh, he hears things, and then he turns and sees things. So this is a literary device that John uses throughout these visions that, again, help us, I think, interpret some of the uh, the text that we will be looking at uh, later on. And so what did he see? What did he behold? He beheld a door standing open in heaven. And so we get this idea now there's about to be a change in perspective, if you will, because the first vision, while he saw the risen Christ, the primary perspective of, of view was things on earth. Paul was, or excuse me, John was describing for us things that were taking place in the first century with the seven letters to the seven churches. Now this vision, he's moving from an earthly view to a heavenly view. And so that's why I say that the book of Revelation is, is, is a story book in a sense, not, it's a picture book, if you will, not a puzzle book, because John's getting pictures and glimpses of things from different perspectives and he's he's doing the best he can with the language that's afforded to him that uh, in, in his lifetime and the ability he ha and skill he has in that language to portray to us the things that he hears and the things that he sees and some things he sees on earth and some things he sees from a heavenly perspective and what you and I need to understand in the outset that the things that are in heaven are driving the things that are on earth, okay? And it'll become clear as we get to the idea of God being on his throne. Now, at this point, not, not to belabor it too much because I've already hit on that uh, quite a bit, the issue of dispensationalism and pre-tribulation rapture of the church. But it, we have to mention it here because this is one place where dispensationalists would say that, hey, while the text doesn't explicitly say that the church is caught up uh, to be with the Lord here, like like you know the the rapture, the resurrection, rapture in First Thessalonians, and the same thing we see in First uh, Corinthians fifteen, First Thessalonians four, and First Corinthians fifteen. That John is a type or a symbol of that. Well, if you if you say that, you're really pressing hard on this text to get it there. Uh, you're, you're really implanting that idea in the text because it doesn't say anything about that. All it does tell us is there is an open door. And we're about to find out that the Lord calls John up and John goes to see, uh, in the sense he was caught up in the spirit and he, and, he, and he enters into or looks through this doorway at a minimum. He looks through this doorway and sees this vision. So there's really no... There's no textual validation, at least from Revelation chapter 4, to uh, fortify one's belief in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. If you find it there, you're putting it there because the text doesn't put it there. And so he sees in uh, this door, this open wide before him. So he has this change of perspective. And then he says, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said come up here well what's the first voice he heard well you have to go back to chapter 1 and verse 10 where he hears the voice of the lord uh, saying to him this is jesus's voice speaking to him like a trumpet so it's the same voice jesus is calling him to come up here and to see the things that he wants to show him and so what are these things that he wants to show him? It says, again, we have this second, the second occurrence of uh, metatauta uh, in this verse, which is after this. So what's he coming to see? I will show you what must take place after this. Now, what is the after this in this represented here? We know the after this at the first part of the verse has to do with immediately following or, or within you know 
whatever time frame following the immediate the, the initial vision that's the after this now these things are things that should take place after what he's described in these first visions so you would get the idea that it might be a futuristic application of things that are to come later on and in some sense i think that is very true some of these things will take place at a later date but at the same time if we're looking at these stories as a recapitulation and it's telling us what god is doing in redemption and judgment and consummation uh retelling that same story from different perspectives some of these things are going on right now in the present as well not just later on uh, when we think about god on his throne here in just a moment right now he's on his throne so here's what mounts says robert mounts in his commentary dealing with the issue of metatata he says after the events of john's present in other words the future now gk beale it comes to, mounts comes to revelation with a uh, a post tribulation uh concept in other words he does believe there'll be a tribulation period of seven years and at the end of that tribulation period the lord will come back the resurrection will take place and there'll be the consummation of the age and so in that sense he looks at it as a futuristic view uh of these things from chapter four on uh gk beale comes to revelation more from an amillennial uh, aspect more from the the perspective that i'm coming from revelation uh with and so uh some of these things are contemporary to john and contemporary to us in the sense that we believe that we are in those last days the final age the millennium now if you will aspect because god is enthroned the kingdom came or be, uh, when jesus uh stepped into humanity at, at the first advent uh, those that began the latter days and we'll we'll see some of that as we go uh through this here but here's what bill says about the after this concept he said this is the sequential order in which john saw the visions but not necessarily the historical order of the events they depict and he gives several verses and we won't take time to read all of them i'll give them to you you can write them down and go find it again these there's one two three four five occurrences of this of some form of meta tauta meta maybe meta tuta uh it, the the demonstrable pronoun changes its form a little bit but anyway this same after this is seen in chapter 7 verse 1 chapter 7 verse 9 chapter 15 verse 5 chapter 18 verse 1 chapter 19 verse 1 and so what bill is saying is in the context of those revelations those those visions that john is is getting that the the things that he's about to say are taking place after things he has already said so it's like a sequential order of things that took place and not necessarily a historical order of when those things took place if that makes any sense now like somewhat bill says there uh, but I do favor some of what Mount says because I think it's not either or, it's both and. Because bo right now, there are things that are taking place. And in John's life, there were things that were taking place in these after this visions that were, were, were in the here and now for him. And there are things that are taking place that are in the here and now for us. But yet there are things that still need to take place that haven't come uh, to fruition uh, yeah, so I think it's both and and not <clears throat> either or in that case. But just to validate this idea of the last days. See, you know, we, we get in our mind this idea that the last days are things that that are, are something still yet to come. Well, we're in the last days. We just hadn't seen the end of the last days. Because the last days started when Jesus came on earth. Um and one of the validations of that's even in the in in peter's first sermon uh, whenever he stood up at pentecost and began to preach whenever the holy spirit fell on uh, the disciples there and they began to speak with uh, unknown tongues or at least spoke in the language that other people understood from all the different regions of of the area and look at listen to what he, what peter says in his sermon in acts chapter 2 verses 16 and 17 but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. 
And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So he equated this pouring out of the Holy Spirit. You remember the people thought they were drunk. And Peter says, hey, these people are not drunk as you suppose, right? It's the Holy Spirit that's been poured out upon them uh, as promised by God through the prophet Joel. And he says this will happen in the last days. So they were in the last days, just like you and I are in the last days. And here's another one that maybe you think is out of place, but it drives home the point. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And the author of Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he spoke to us by his Son. So again, we're in the last days. When Jesus came uh, into humanity, that began the, the final age uh, of, of humanity, if you will, or God's redemptive plan began the final age of that. And we're in that last age, that last day, and we're waiting on the consummation of this age when Christ comes again. So I think if we, even if we look at it in some future aspect, we need to hold on to the remember already not yet aspect of the kingdom of God. Already some things have happened, but not yet some things, uh, have, all things have been fulfilled. And so you get this, that aspect of it in this, in this uh, verse. So moving to verse two, at once I was in the spirit. And again, that, that implies that there was some separation from the first vision, right? The first vision uh, when he was caught up on the Lord's day while he's there on the Isle of Patmos, still on the Isle of Patmos. But it, it seems as though there may have been some separation of time. How, how much? I don't know. Um, but he's caught up into uh, the spirit again, and he beheld something as he was caught up in the spirit. And what did he behold? A throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne and again we we won't read all of these references because we could be here all night if we wanted to chase everything down but daniel chapter 7 you can write that down ezekiel chapter 1 uh, they underlie a lot of what we see or at least give some parallel uh, aspect a lot of what we see in revelation that god is giving to john and so it behoove you to go read daniel and read ezekiel uh, in this particular vision, you could also put Isaiah in there, the throne room vision of Isaiah uh, as well. And this is, this is a, a dominant theme in chapters 4 and chapter 5, the idea of God being enthroned. And 17 times in chapter 4 and 5, we see God or we see the throne of God mentioned 17 times in chapter 4 and 5. So what do you think is the central idea of these chapters? Is God is on his throne. And then from chapter uh, 6 through 22, God's throne is mentioned 21 times. So God being enthroned is a major theme in the book of Revelation. And again, not to get too far ahead of ourselves and go ahead to the conclusion but that is an important aspect of what john is trying to tell us uh and what god is trying to tell us through john with the book of revelation no matter what it looks like no matter what caesar says no matter what the circumstances look like you need to understand god is enthroned god is seated on his throne right now that's why in the, from the all-millennial perspective, it is the millennium now. Right now, God is on his throne. Yahweh, God the Father, is enthroned. Right now, God the Son, Jesus Christ, is seated at the right hand of the Father. It's not something that has to happen later on. That's happening right now. He is enthroned. He is in charge. He is in control. And you and I can gain comfort from that fact that no matter what the world looks like, God is presently right now in this moment on his throne and so it's a very prominent aspect to uh these vision uh narratives that we find in the book of revelation so again it's a couple points that tells us god is sovereign over all of humanity uh here's what bill says about uh, this aspect all heavenly beings find their significance in their placement around the throne 
Now, that's the heavenly beings, and all earthly inhabitants are judged on the basis of their attitude to God's claim to rule over them from his throne. So again, God is the center. The heavenly beings and their proximity find their significance in their proximity to the throne of God. And we on earth, we find our, our worth and our value and our relevance in our bowing our knee to the enthroned God who reigns from heaven. So that leads us to verse 3. So we see God on his throne. In verse 3, And he who sat there, had this had the appearance of and so he describes the appearance of the lord and he gives three three stones that he uses to describe the lord the last one is encompassed in the description of a rainbow but it's he still calls it a stone so the first is jasper uh, cornelian which in some translation may be sardis is a stone that was named after uh, the sardis where it was uh, mined close to and then, uh, and the and the throne, uh, and around the throne, was a rainbow that had the appearance of an in, emerald. So, what are the significance of these particular stones that we find here? Well, I mean, you can read a lot of different commentaries. Most of them probably agree to some extent on. Uh, on on these stones in that hey they have a significance there's a lot of things that they represent could represent not everybody's sure about what they represent if they tell you they are then they're just telling you a fib but we can gain some insight from the rest of scripture and the way these stones are used in revelation jasper is mentioned again in revelation 21 11 and it says, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So at least if we stay within the context of Revelation, the Lord is telling us this jasper in some sense is clear. So some people say it could be a diamond, a rep, uh, representative of a diamond. But the most important part of the idea of this jasper is that it speaks of or has to do with the glory of god the radiance of god the beauty and the magnificence of who god is okay so it's the best way for us for john to communicate to us uh, the glory and the magnificence that he sees around this throne and so Jasper, in that sense, is clear and has something to do with, with the glory of God. Whereas Car Carnelian or Sardis is more of a, a blood red kind of stone. And some people equate it with judgment, which that's, I mean, you can make an argument for that. In just a moment, we're going to hear from the throne and we're going to be reminded that some of that, what we hear is uh, used in judgment or at least uh, follows the voice of God when he speaks uh, to humanity. Uh, and then the third one is the emerald. And if, if the emerald, if it's talking about emerald as green and you think about a rainbow, uh, you know, and a rainbow is, you know, we see the picture with the little halo rainbow over the throne of God. And so green would be a uh, part of that. Um, usually I think it's the last part of the rainbow, but some people have made this connection that emerald in some sense may be again, another crystal clear stone that when light shines through it, it acts as a prism and it, and it, and it refracts the light into the colors of a rainbow, uh, of which green would be one of them. So again, I think the main the main thrust of what these colors mean or these stones mean, uh, they're they're telling us about the glory and the grandeur and the magnificence of the one who is enthroned. And it's the best way it's the best way John can describe what is known. Now there's some other uses of these stones in the Bible that may, you know, show their significance in and the correlation between the stones that John used to describe the one enthroned. 
Um, so, uh, in Ezekiel 1, 28, we see very similar language uh, when Ezekiel has his throne revision, like the appearance of the bow, the rainbow, that is, uh, in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around, such as the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So again, he's describing, I think, the latter definition we gave to the emerald of that, that clear prism-like stone that when light was shone, shone through it, that it reflected that light into the colors of the rainbow. But again, you get the general sense that what John is trying to describe is what Ezekiel saw, just the brightness and the glory that emanates from the throne uh, of God who, where he is where he is seated. Uh, the, the, the stones are also part of the 12 stones that are on the, the breastplate of the high priest and Jasper is at the top of that. So it takes that place of prominence. So again, these stones, you see parallel uses of these stones all throughout, uh, scripture. Uh, Beale says this about the stone speaks, it speaks of God's mercy, the rainbow anyway, speaks of God's mercy, uh, as in the days of Noah, but it also suggests that even as God's judgment unfolded, that he will be gracious to his true people. And we can see that in, because the rainbow has that significant covenantal aspect to it, where God promised not to destroy the earth with water again. You know, he's going to destroy it later with fire and brimstone, but not with water. And so you have that covenantal aspect that's related, that mercy and grace uh, of God that is there. Uh also, those stones, if you go to chapter 21, verses 10 through 11, you'll see these same three stones associated with, not exclusively, but they're associated with the new creation that is to come. So some even think that, hey, this is, this is, a, this is a foreshadowing of that new creation that we see the, the, see the elements of it in heaven that will become a reality uh, at the end of Revelation. Um let's see what else I had stones rainbow all right so again I think the ultimate the ultimate focus we need to have on these stones is not to get bogged down in the putting the pieces of the puzzle together for each little stone what we need to understand is that John like Ezekiel looks through the doorway of heaven he sees the magnificent glory of God as he is enthroned on his throne and he describes that to us to the in the best way that he knows how in this bright brilliance that he sees and so it's an awesome picture of the enthroned uh, eternal God that he sees seated there it's talking I mean again you can't help but think of his majesty and his power um, as being the one who is enthroned in the heavens. Then verse 4, around the throne. So again, we, we have this proximity of people uh, that are around our beings. I should put it that way. There's proximity of beings that are around the throne in different, in different uh, locations around this throne or within different proximities of the throne. Uh, so the first we see are are 24 thrones okay and these 24 thrones on them are seated 24 elders now we got to ask ourselves who are these 24 elders that we're talking about and there's several interpretations of who these elders are uh, the majority of them revolve around this idea that one they're either angelic beings uh, performing some function of uh priestly duties if you will uh, and represent in some way or at least minister in some way as representing the church okay the the total people of god um, some people gather that from uh first corinthians i think it's chapter 24 through chapter 26 where david lists out these 24 courses of priest these 24 uh, Levitical gatekeepers and there's 24 worship leaders that are there so these 24 in that sense all of those had to do with with functioning in the temple of God which was the earthly representation of the throne room of God and so there is argument for this idea of these 24 elders being 
angelic beings that would minister in that kind of way. Um, some people look at them as uh, the total people, representing the total people of God, in that you have 12 um, tribes of Israel, and then you have 12 apostles. And later on, we'll see, and I, I get them mixed up all the time, I think the uh, on the gates are the 12 tribes of Israel and then the foundation of the new city, the new Jerusalem, are the 12 apostles. But I may have that back, uh, reversed. But we see them in the new creation when it comes down that those 12 uh, uh, tribes are mentioned and the 12 apostles are associated with this new Jerusalem that is coming down, which again, I think that in itself, it does represent the totality of the people of God. A good cross-reference, we're in Romans uh, right now on Sunday morning at Friendship Baptist Church in Tallahassee, Alabama. So if you're in that vicinity looking for a good church, come visit us. And we're going to we're, we're in chapter 9 right now. We're right in the heart of it. Uh, we'll be getting to chapter 11. Chapter 11, we're going to find out about this one root, this one olive tree where we have two uh, groups of people grafted in, some broken off, but you got Jews and Gentiles both grafted into this one olive tree, again, symbolizing the total true people of God. So I think you can make an argument for uh, that as well. I think Beale leans toward the fact that they're probably some angelic being that minister in this Levitical priestly kind of way uh, because of what we read later on in Revelation. If you go to, and again, just write it down and you can go read it. Revelation 7, 9 through 17, specifically verses 13 and 14, you will find that these 24 elders, along with the, the four living creatures that we will see in just a moment, uh, they are seen before the throne of the Lord uh, and they have each of them uh, bowls that contain the prayers of the saints. So in that sense, it's as if they minister as priest would in front of the throne of God, putting incense uh, on the on the golden altar uh, that would have gone up before the Lord, mixed in with the prayers of the saint that we saints that we learn about in Ezekiel, uh, that golden altar that is there. So there's good evidence that they could be that. Uh, Mounts uh, says about them that they are exalted angelic order who serve and adore God as heavenly counterpart to the 24 priestly and 24 Levitical uh, orders that David talked about here on earth. So both of them agree that they're probably angelic beings. There are others, and, and I am one of those that believe that some way and somehow they represent the total people of God, the, the church in some way. Uh, and again, my argument would lie in, in, the, in that they represent Israel as the people of God and the church, the apostles who represent the church as the people of God and tying in, like I said, with, with the new Jerusalem that's coming down in that sense because, you know, one of the, one of the reasons is that they could still, as human representatives of uh, the church, the total people of God in heaven, they could still offer and work in a priestly role. They don't have to be angelic beings to do uh, that. And secondly, the word uh, elder that we find here, the word elder is used almost exclusively uh, for humans in, in the church role, right? The elders of the church. In the New Testament, it's almost used exclusively for a human who functions as elders or leaders of local New Testament churches. So that's another reason. And then the, the other two reasons, I think, for the clothing that we see that they're described with. So if you continue reading in verse 4, you will see that they are clothed in white garments. Now, we, we can say, hey, you know, we see angels clothed in white garments. And, and that is true. White simply generally represents holiness or righteousness but we know from revelation already that those who are god's children those who are the ones who overcome right and we know that the ones who overcome are the ones who place their faith in jesus christ and evidence of that is that they do overcome they do persevere to the end that in the letter to the churches remember those promises that were made well one of those promises that they would receive these white garments and you remember laodicea the last one we read god 
God uh, challenged them to come and buy from him white raiment, right? So that they wouldn't be naked. So it seems to me in the context of Revelation that this white uh, is generally describing the saints. It's generally describing the righteousness of Christ, which has been imputed to the saints of God. So, and that's one of the evidences, I believe, that in some way they represent the church in that way. And then the second aspect of their dress is on their heads they had golden crowns. If you see that in, at the end of verse 4. And in a moment we're going to see what they do with those crowns. Uh, but again, these crowns, you can't help but think about the crowns we've already seen in Revelation. And I don't remember, and again, I, my memory just may not uh, recall it. But I don't remember necessarily um, angels ever being described wearing crowns. Now, this would be crowns not in the sense of of the 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 the, the laurel the wreaths that they would win at the end of races. But these were golden wreaths that were placed on their head in that kind of award kind of sense. Uh, this crown. And so again, we've already seen these pro the promise of the crown that is life. You remember that, uh, the crown of life that was promised to those who overcome. So again, that's another argument for me that these are human representatives of the total people of God uh, because of their dress and because of the 12 tribes and the 12 uh, apostles because we're going to see in chapter 7 that it talks about there's a remnant that's drawn from every tribe of Israel. There's a remnant that's drawn from every tribe of Israel uh, and sealed. And then when John looks, uh, after he hears that number, he looks and what he sees is a multitude from every tongue, nation uh, in, in the world. A multitude of, of people that represent the total church, the total people of God. So I believe that's who they are in this in revelation but again there, there are arguments to uh the angelic being aspect as well so then we go to verse 5 verse 5 says from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder and well you, your mind can't help if you're a bible student your mind can't help but go to exodus right in mount sinai because in mount sinai when moses went to visit god on the mountain uh, when god spoke that's what happened they had thunder and lightning and peals of thunder coming uh, and it scared the people so much the people says hey moses you talk to god we don't want to talk to god anymore you talk to him and tell us what he says uh, so whenever god's voice uh, speaks uh, that's what it sounds like coming from his throne room now there are those who think that that is uh, associated with judgment and in sinai it wasn't necessarily associated with judgment all the time although there was an aspect of judgment that came because of the golden calf that was going on at the bottom of the mountain but in revelation when we hear these peals of thunder and uh, you know, rumblings and lightning that come out it's almost always after a declaration of judgment that is coming and again just write these verses down and you can go find them and, and read them in revelation but we see similar language in revelation chapter 8 verse 5 revelation chapter 11 verse 19 revelation chapter 16 verse 18 and all of those have to do with God uh, issuing the command for judgment or some aspect of judgment to take place uh, on on earth. And so these peals of thunder, again, it just speaks of the, the magnitude, the majesty and the power uh, of God on his throne. Then we got before the throne. So again, you see all these are in some proximity to the throne. We got the elders, we got God's throne, and these elders are enthroned, right? And again, another argument for the elders being the people of God, the church, is God promised, again, I think it was Laodicea that he promised them that they would, they would rule and reign with him. Uh, so uh, again, that that's a validates, at least in my mind, validates my argument that these are the people, represent the total people of God. But here we see before the throne of the Lord, uh, there were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And we've seen that language a couple times already in Revelation and these torches that are there. One aspect of the torches, whenever you think about it, at least I do when I think about it, is I can't help but think about the the candelabra, the you know the menorah that's in the in the earthly description of the tabernacle and the and the temple. But there's something different about uh, this 
torch in the sense that it it represents in some way the spirit of the lord and we talked about the number seven being the seven of the number of completion or perfection so we've already discussed this as being the perfected vision of god in particular through uh the holy spirit's work in revelation of uh in in this world and what's going on in this world so god sees all god knows all you could put uh, zechariah chapter four there because Zechariah chapter 4 uh, has language about the lampstand and the Spirit of God as well. And, and again, you can make some um, typological uh, connections if you think about it. Because the oil in the Old Testament, the anointing of the oil in the Old Testament, uh, generally represented the anointing of the Holy Spirit, like on King David and that kind of stuff. So you could say, hey, the oil in those lamps represent the Spirit of the Lord. John's already told us in Revelation chapter 1 what the lampstands represent. They represent the church, right? So this some way, this is an aspect of God's Spirit working and seeing and looking through uh, the church uh, as he ministers in the present time in our in our lives so then we go a little further in to the throne and from the throne we see in verse 6 and before the throne there was as it were a sea of glass like crystal now again you can't help but think about the background from ezekiel because ezekiel talks about uh, ushering from the the temple of God, the throne of God, this this river that flows right, that starts out. Uh, I hate to say like a little trickle, but it starts out small and it gets bigger and deeper and wider as as it goes. And so you can't help but think about that same kind of vision that he had, uh, representing the, the the throne room of God, the, the the heaven. And then when you think about Revelation 22, Revelation 22, the new Jerusalem's coming down, and from the throne in Revelation 22, there's this river of life, if you will, that flows from the throne. We know there's no more sea. The Lord tells us there's no more sea in that sense, and some people make some connection to the idea that when the sea is mentioned in revelation that it generally is talking about our symbolic of the sea of humanity uh, and we see you know the sea of humanity in turmoil and chaos here we see a sea clear and crystal like glass as if it is still and calm but I, I think it's representative more of what we see in the New Jerusalem. Uh, the throne room of God has this river of life that flows or emanates from the throne room of God. And on, on the side of it is that tree of life that uh, we'll read about when we get over there. And if my memory serves me correctly, it has 12 kinds of fruit in it, and it makes its fruit every, every month. Uh, or uh, It never ceases to make its fruit. So again, we, we just see the sustenance and the provision and, and uh, God's working to bring life and, and, and energy uh, to his people in, in this world. And then uh, as we move a little bit further down or closer in, we see uh, in the latter part of verse 6, around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures and then we're going to get a description of them the last phrase in verse six says full of eyes on front and behind so they see everything all the time everywhere uh in in heaven around the throne and again these seem to be those who are in the closest proximity to the throne and again, you can't help but think about Isaiah's vision. You remember when he saw the Lord high and lifted up and seated on his throne and the train filled, uh, the, the, the train of his robe filled the, the, the earth. Uh, he saw these heavenly creatures. Now, the description is not exactly like the description that John has. Uh, and then you have uh, Ezekiel sees similar beings in a similar description like John has here in his throne room vision. So there's something, there's some angelic being, cherubim, seraphim, that are in close proximity to the throne of God in all those visions. And it seems as though one of their primary functions is to constantly, without ceasing, worship uh, the Lord. And so he begins to describe these creatures in 
So he says, first, the first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature with an e- like an eagle in flight. And now here's where people go off the rails, I think, when they try to get in Revelation and figure out, well, what does he mean by lion, and what does he mean by ox, and what does he mean by man, and what does he mean by an eagle in flight? And I think you remember we said Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. Uh, Revelation is painting a picture of the magnificence and the glory of God uh, and God's enthronement and God being in control. And it's meant to be an encouragement for believers. It's not meant for us to grab the paper and sit down and say, okay, what piece of the puzzle uh, do we find today that fits in with where we are in the scheme of things in the book of Revelation? And I think the same thing goes with these um angelic beings you know whenever going through in revelation john has already told us you remember based on how the what the language is in chapter one how we started out you know with the correlation in 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 daniel we need to interpret revelation symbolically unless it tells us to interpret it literally so all of these things are symbolic in nature and they have symbolic meanings that we may not completely understand a couple of guys have said this about these beings okay and so i think if you try to trace these beings that you're taking yourself down a rabbit hole that uh has little value to you as it relates to the book of revelation just know that these are angelic beings that are magnificent beings that are at the heart of the throne of god and their primary focus is what we're going to see them doing and that's worshiping uh, a holy righteous god but here's what one gentleman said about these animals he said that the the lion in 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 this order the lion the ox the man and the and the eagle they represent the noblest the strongest the wisest and the swiftest in animated nature okay and then in uh one other guy very similar uh, says strength and service intelligence and swiftness uh the ox in service as is it is a it's a beast of labor uh right and so again it just speaks of the magnificence and the grandeur of this heavenly vision and scene and of god himself and the beings that are around uh, his throne and you could make a little bit of a leap to say that it is some representation of god uh, being over every aspect of his creation right represented by these various uh animals uh, or beings that are are seen in in this description but don't press it too much because the bigger picture that john is trying to show us i think is what these creatures do not what they look like so in verse 80 says and the four living creatures each of them with six wings remember that 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 mimics or at least uh is like what isaiah saw ezekiel they had four wings but isaiah they had six wings and it says all full of eyes all around within uh and so again they had unlimited vision if you will uh and then it says and day and night they never cease to say now you and i have to understand john again is speaking in terms that we can understand because if you're in the heavenly throne room god transcends time and space right uh, there is no day uh, or night in that sense because he, he lives in eternity uh, he intercedes into or uh, works in uh, time and space with us but god is eternal so he's speaking in ways that you and i can understand in the the point he's trying to make is really what the second phrase says they never cease they constantly all the time and from our language all day every day uh, they never cease to say holy 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 is the lord god almighty who was and is and is to come and so again what are they doing they are worshiping the lord for who he is right he is holy he is the thrice holy god and again a lot of people put try to press on their you know trinity we know we we can we can see trinity but that's only because we've seen it throughout the scripture right Uh, this is just you know this thrice holiness is trying to again talk about the completeness 
the, the totality, the magnitude of God's holiness. So he is holy, holy, holy. He is Lord God Almighty. So uh, again, talks of his covenant nature, Yahweh, uh, Lord in the sense in the Hebrew, it, they would probably have Yahweh in that aspect. But it is the covenant God, the all-powerful God, the holy God, and the eternal God who is and who, who was and who is and who is to come. So it talks about the eternality of God and their function and their role. This is their task. Every day, all day, worship the Lord. Proclaim to all those in earshot. Uh, and they could probably make their voices heard through all of heaven and all those in earshot heard them continually say holy 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 is the lord god almighty who was who is and is to come and then in verse 9 uh and whenever the living creatures give glory honor and thanks and it'll stop right there there's three aspects of worship right what are they doing? They're worshiping the Lord. They're doing it ceaselessly, every day, all day. And how are they doing it? They're giving him glory and honor and thanks. How about us when we worship the Lord? What's our worship focused on? Right? Is it focused on, hey, you know, what the temperature is, how the pews feel, what the songs are, uh, you know, how do I feel about what's going on? No. Their worship is focused on God, who he is. And they give him glory and honor and thanks. Thanks. So next time you go to church and you engage in worship, why not make that the central focus of your worship to give God glory and honor and thanks and try to not make ourselves the central part of worship about how I feel and what feels right to me and good to me, but who God is. And we're going to see in a moment we also worship him for what he has done so they worship him they give thanks and honor glory honor and thanks to him who is seated again on the throne don't miss that point that that's the driving theme of this chapter god is seated on his throne who lives forever and ever so when these 24 or when these four living creatures worship the lord in this way listen to what happens with the 24 elders the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne. And what do they do? They worship him who lives forever and ever. So what's one of the primary things that takes place in heaven? It is the worship of the eternal, holy, almighty, covenantal God. So these 24 elders, they fall on their face before the Lord. And again, we've already seen these kinds of things and again I, I, we love the movie and the song I can only imagine well the Bible gives us a glimpse of what probably will take place the first time we encounter the risen Lord or the enthroned God we will fall on our face before God it says they, they fell down on their face before the Lord and they worshiped him who is for, lives forever and ever and then look what they did they cast their crowns before the throne saying worthy are you O our lord and god to receive glory and honor and they say power for you created all things and by your will they exist existed and were created so the four living creatures worship god for who he is holy 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 the 24 elders, they worship God for who he is and what he has done. He has created the heavens and the earth. He's created all things. And it's because of his will that they exist and they were created. Everything around us is because of who God is and what God has done. And so they cast their throne, throne, th crowns to, at the throne and they bow before the throne. So they show their submission to the will of God. Boy, what if we worship that way? Where we bowed our knee, we prostrated ourselves. Prostrated? Prostrate? Prostate. Prostate is what you have in your body. 
prostrate is what you do when you lay on the ground, right? <laughs> so if we if we lay ourselves out before uh, the Lord, uh, that that seems to be the picture of those who worship the Lord in the heavens. So that's this first throne room vision. And so just by way of bullet point, we'll wrap this thing up. Uh, I say bullet point, you know I got to comment on some of it. But let me give you some application to this. First thing I wrote down was, can, can we see, and we've already alluded to it, can you see the distinction in how worship takes place in heaven versus how we see worship take place in most churches today? Now, again, I know there are places and there are people in every church that worship the Lord truly. But for the most of us, in most churches, worship has become about my flavor of music and my flavor of the atmosphere, right? It's become about me. What I like, what makes me feel good. That's not what worship is about. Worship is about us coming together as the body of Christ and giving worth to God for who he is and what he has done with no no worry about who I am. I'm nothing, right, outside of Christ. So I, I come to worship him and him alone. So you and I, maybe we can, if we don't get anything else from this chapter, we can see maybe we ought to worship differently this coming Sunday when we come. Or you don't have to wait to Sunday. You can worship tonight. You can worship tomorrow. Uh, you can worship every day of the week. But when we worship the Lord, have in mind we ought to worship him like these 24 elders worshiped him, like these four living creatures worshiped him. And then, uh, you know, Revelation, in my opinion, God was God wrote Revelation to us through John to be an encouragement, right? Not, not, to, not to cause us to sit down and get out our... our you know, charts and our newspaper and try to find out where, what hap what's happening in Israel and the Middle East and all those kinds of things. We, we need to know about those things. I, I, I get it, right? Just because we're citizens of this world. But God wrote this to us, just like he wrote it to the first century, to be an encouragement no matter what the situation looks like, no matter what the circumstances look like. So what are some of the encouraging things we can glean from this chapter, this first portion of this throne room vision that we see? One, we've already talked about it. It is the theme of this chapter and the theme of the next chapter, really, that God is enthroned. Right now, God's seated on his throne. You don't have to wait till Jesus comes back again. Christ is enthroned at the right hand of the Father, and the Father has always been on his throne. He is in control. In light of that, Caesar is not in control, first century church. No matter what Caesar is doing or saying, God is in control, right? And for the 21st century church, guess what? The White House, the occupant of the White House is not in control. The occupant, uh, the, the hundred guy, uh, people in the Senate or in, in uh, those that are in the Congress, they're not in control. God is in control. No matter who's in where we live, in our state capital, Montgomery, no matter who's in, in the governor's house, the governor's not in control. God is in control. Now, the governor's there, and the people in the White House, are in Congress, and Senate, and the White House, and all the other places around this world, in leadership, they're there because God allows them to be there, and God uses them to accomplish his will. But ultimately, God is in control because God is on his throne. So it doesn't matter how much persecution comes your way, how much tribulation comes your way, how much pressure comes your way because of your faith in Christ? It doesn't matter because God is enthroned. None of it's taken him by surprise. So you don't have to cower to the people of this world because God is in control. So we can patiently endure as we've already been challenged to do multiple times in these letters to the churches and we'll be challenged to do again in these visions uh, as we go through them. We can patiently endure until the end why because god is on his throne he is victorious we as we learned in romans chapter 8 at the end of that romans chapter 8 with that doxology we are more than conquerors in christ jesus and so we can stand firm in light of the injustice and the unholiness and the sinfulness in this world. We can stand firm on God's word. We can be salt and light in this world and know that God is in control. No matter what happens to us, God is in control. God is 
almighty. He is holy. He is enthroned. He is in power. He is eternal. He created this world and he sustains this world. And I don't care what you think about global warming. The world's not going to end till God says it's time for the world to end. Okay. And so we can, we can, we can live and, and function in this world chaotic as it may be with confidence and courage and hope because of who he is right because he is in control well i hope that uh, was encouraging to you and hopefully you gleaned some things from that that can help you next week we'll finish up <coughs> excuse me the throne room vision lord willing 14 verses in chapter 5 we'll try to go through those some of these we'll have to break up from time to time and we may do that next week i don't know i hadn't really sat down and, and charted it out yet how we're going to go about it but that's our plans and hit chapter five and finish up this throne room vision here and then uh, continue on so if you got questions or comments put them in the question comments on facebook or uh, i think there's a way for you to do that on the podcast as well or just find us on facebook and shoot us a message if there's something you want us to talk about on the podcast that we hadn't talked about then send us a note and we'll talk about that from a biblical perspective just have a hope you have a glorious week and that uh, the lord uses you in a mighty way in the, in the coming days